Welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast, where we are training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. Hey, listen, um, I, when Kevin was like, hey, you get brownie points or bonus points, um, I was thinking he was going to talk about the snow <laughs> that was on Mount Lemmon here this last couple of days, but he was talking about the fog. I mean, who cares about the fog? What about the snow, right? We don't ever get to see the snow. Did anybody go up to see it? So, um, uh, I was driving behind somebody um, after it snowed, and they had come down from Mount Lemmon, because I kind of live over on the east side over there, and there was a bunch of snow that blew up off of their windshield over the back of their car, and it hit my truck <laughs> right on the windshield. I don't know why it made me super happy, but I was like, that's, that's probably all the snow that's going to hit my truck for the rest of the year. But um, that was pretty fun. Um, this was a unique week, wasn't it? I, I don't know why it uh, um, moved me. I think because I'm kind of a nostalgic person. Um, and uh, when I, I, I listened to, I don't know if you did, um, I, I listened to um, or watched the funeral for uh, um, President Bush. And... Um, it, it just moved me, all the, all the things, I think, because of, uh, you know, just where I was at, maybe, when uh, he was president. Just the good things um, about him, and such an awesome, uh, uh, I think, funeral service that focused on uh, all the right things. So, I don't know if you are, were paying attention to that or not, but it made me... Um, a sort of long, I guess, for some times like that, even though I think, uh, I don't know, it's funny, I feel like the media was fawning all over uh, President Bush and his memory, but at the time, I can remember it was not like that. Isn't that kind of crazy how that happens? So, um, I, I, I don't know, maybe that'll happen with everybody. Um, but it's true when um, you're talking about somebody at their funeral, you, you focus on all the good things. <laughs> That is a certain, I hope it's certain of me um, as well, because uh, there's plenty of things you could talk about that aren't that great, I'm sure. So, um, but uh, it just kind of got all over me this week. I, I was, um, I think it's the time of year and what's going on. It's uh, my, I, I really love this time of year. Uh, it's some of my most uh, favorite times. I'm, I'm really excited because our kids are coming home for Christmas. We don't get to see them together um, very often, and so they're going to be here, which is pretty exciting for us. So um, Lynn and I have been killing ourselves, kind of um, re, you know, kind of redoing the inside of our house. <laughs> Since they left, we just sort of closed the door in their rooms and all that, and so my goodness, that was terrible. That was a terrible project to do this last week or so. But I got a little bit of time off and uh, to focus on that kind of stuff, and it was really good. Um, uh, while these guys are bringing this up, you know, the newsletter is in your seat, and it's something really great to utilize to invite somebody to church this month. I really, really want you to um, consider inviting, in, inviting someone to church. Um, I think it's a pretty important um, thing to be focused on during this season. People are really open to come into church, so make sure that you do that. Take people out to lunch, 
you know, invite folks. I've invited a lot of folks. I, I, there's some people going to be here um, today that I asked to come, and I told them I would take them to lunch. You can do that. Everybody eats after church, right? Or bring them home with you. But invite people to church because there's no doubt that, that, that you're going to meet somebody, you're going to engage with somebody, and, and they're going to be talking with you, and they're just going to say, I was not uh, prepared for what has happened in my life. I was not prepared. Or um, I'm not in church, or I'm uh, not, uh, I, 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 things are just not going well, right? You remember those three knots? It's going to come up, and, and uh, I really, really, there it is. I really want you to encourage, I, I want to encourage you to invite people into community with you. Invite them to church. Invite them into your community group. Invite them into your family. This is an opportunity to really give and to be utilized, I think, by the Lord, okay? So take advantage of that, because uh, Christmas Eve services, it's, it's the high, most uh, highly attended service um, of the year, last year we had well over 1,500 people here in four services. And uh, so it's a, it's a really good opportunity. I mean, you can do stuff at home, all right? And, and I'm sure you got all kinds of family stuff, but this is the place you need to be and, and, and pull people in, at least in one of these services are 2, 4, 6, and 8 p.m. And 8 p.m. is kind of a, a more traditional candlelight service, okay? The other three are really focused on families and kids. So we got a petting zoo um, out here that's really great. Um, and a photo booth and things like that that just uh, people love to do at Christmas. Bring a family with you, in particular on Christmas Eve or other times, and um, goodness, uh, take advantage of what's in front of you in the way the Lord, I think, gives us opportunities. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of other things. There's stuff in that newsletter. Take it because there's classes that are coming up in the new year that we want to encourage you um, with. And... Um, one of those classes, if you're a parent, Pastor Trey, he's teaching a class about sex. I know. It's kind of crazy. So you should tell your parents to uh, sign up for that, right? So they can talk to you about it. It's not easy to talk to you. So Trey, Trey, Trey is going to hopefully do his best, all right, uh, with all that. It should be really uh, an exciting class. There's a lot of good classes, class on marriage and finances and other really good stuff, okay? Um, so, um, good. This morning, if you want to take your Bible out, I will, uh, I want to encourage you to turn to Micah. So, it's an Old Testament prophet. So, you want to go towards the end of the Old Testament and turn to the book of Micah. So if you went to Daniel, Daniel's a bigger book, and then you'd find Hosea, right? After Hosea, you'll find um, uh, Amos, Obadiah, actually Joel, Amos, Obadiah, right? And um, Jonah, Micah, okay? So um, Micah is one of my favorite Old Testament prophets, right? But what I'm excited to talk about today a little bit during Christmas is this idea of the thrill of hope. I don't know about you, but the, 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 that word thrill is sort of, I don't know, I, I don't see us using that word a lot. Um, 
you know, in this last number of years, but that was a word that my dad used a lot. He, he would, if he was excited about something, if he was overjoyed, if he was moved, he would say he was thrilled, right? He was thrilled. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. You remember that? Okay. So, I don't know. We don't use that word a lot, but I'm telling you that, that Christmas and hope is, is, is thrilling, and we want to talk about that a little bit today. And hope, I, I've done this a lot before when we define hope, all right? You got to remember that hope is not, biblical hope is not cross your fingers kind of, like I hope this will happen, like cross your fingers kind of hope. Hope, in, uh, biblical hope is truth. It's going to happen. It is truthfully going to happen is something that is declared as real, right, good, and, and going to happen. And that's what we want to talk about today is the thrill of hope over this next few weeks uh, leading up into Christmas. The thrill of hope. It's an exciting thing. And one of the, my, I, it, there's no doubt, my most fab- uh, favorite Bible character is David. The reason why David is... Uh, Somebody who, uh, I, who's, who's my most favorite Bible characters, because of his masculine qualities and characteristics, because of, of how real he is, how God calls him a man after his own heart, and yet he blows it as bad as you can mess up, right? And yet he comes back, God gives him another, he gives him plenty of opportunities, and it doesn't really change necessarily God's belief in that he is a man after his own heart. So I, I can identify with that. I've made plenty of mistakes in my life. I've messed up uh, royally plenty of times. But God is full of forgiveness and love. And, and God utilizes David in, um, in spite of that. Now, it doesn't mean that he, he overlooks any of those things and he's not disappointed or doesn't break his heart, all right? And it doesn't mean that it's not sin and all that kind of stuff, but God um, uh, is, is full of uh, second chances. He's full of redemption, love, and David characterizes all these things amongst a, a lot of things. One of maybe the most, my most favorite stories and scenes um, in the Bible is with David and his mighty warriors, his mighty men, right? And he had guys around him. He had men around him all the time. Men that were loyal, men that loved him, men that when he said, let's ride, they would say, okay. When he said, draw your swords, let's ride. We're gonna go kill somebody. They would say, all right, just tell us who, all right? He uh, garnered uh, just uh, loyalty from other men, and man, that, that kind of thing excites me. It motivates me. It thrills me to see and to read those stories. It makes me want to be like him in all of those characteristics. One of my favorite scenes is, is um, you know, David's life. He's gone through all kinds of real um, awesome things from the beginning when God chose him. And then eventually, you know, he biffed it really badly after he takes over really as king after Saul and um, <clears throat> he he commits a, a horrible sin he commits adultery he's he's not a very good parent 
So he's bad at marriage. He's bad at parenting uh, for the most part. One of his sons just wants to kill him, runs him off, right? And, and in the midst of this, he has a really great, loyal, awesome friend named Jonathan. Jonathan confronts him. He comes back. You know, lots of people die because of David's sin. Um, he, he eventually comes back uh, to the Lord. He confesses his sin. He, he does all these things. And there's this scene where he's, um, he's in this stronghold. It's like he's in a cave, all right? Because the Philistines, um, he, you know, he, he's at war. He's, at, he's battling the, the Philistines. And he's, he's pretty much outnumbered. He's in this cave, and, and they've been running, they've been hiding, they've been trying to escape and get away, and he's got guys around him, all right? He's got warriors around him, he's in this cave, and the scene is he can see Bethlehem off in the distance, right, from the stronghold that he's in. It's in Second uh, Samuel, actually, 23. You don't have to turn there. But in about five or six verses, it describes this scene, and you can just hear it in him. You can, you can hear the nostalgia. You can hear his, uh, his uh, he sees his hometown Bethlehem, and he just says, I don't think he's saying it to get anybody to do anything. He just says something out loud. He says, oh, man, I'm so thirsty. If I could just have a drink out of that well that's in front of the gate in Bethlehem, that place where I grew up, that gate, that, oh, you can just hear him say that water would taste so good right now. Oh, man, that would be good. He just kind of sits back and, and says that. Well, he has such loyal men around him that they risk their lives. That one guy in particular, he leaves, he, he, he crosses enemy lines, he, he sneaks away, you know, because you can see Bethlehem in the distance, right? So he goes through enemy, the enemy camp and the Philistines and all that kind of stuff. He sneaks in there. He gets a jug full of water out of that well. And he comes back, and there David is amongst his men, and he says, hey, <clears throat> got you the drink out of the well, right? Oh, can you imagine the scene? David, this is the, I think this is part of the reason why God said, I love David. He's a man after my own heart because if that were me, you know what I would have done? I, I think I've, I've, I'm sure I've said this before because this scene is so, just wrenches me. I would have said, no, 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 I'm not drinking this first. You guys drink. You guys drink first. That's what I would have done. You guys risk your life. I love you guys. You guys are, 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 are with me. You guys are loyal. You risked your life. You drink it first. I'll drink last. That's probably what I would have done. David does something much better than that, much greater than that. And he says, no, no, no. No, no. I'm the Lord's. You're the Lord's. Nobody drinks this. This is the Lord's. And he pours it out. It's called a drink offering. He pours it out right there in honor of the Lord. It's like a, a, a worshipful moment with all of his guys. He says, no, no, no. This is not for me. This is for God because all of who we are, the only reason why we exist is because of God. And he pours it out right there. It's a magnificent scene. Unbelievable scene. Now keep that in mind and turn to Micah chapter 5. It's kind of weird. I'm not going to go into a, a whole lot of reasons here, but in Micah chapter 5, when you start in verse 2, in English, it's the English and the, and the, and the, uh, the original language. It doesn't line up very good. Verse 2 is actually like starting in verse 1. 
So if you're looking through the Net Bible and translation, it'll, it'll say verse 2 and then it'll go 5-1. Meaning, well, it's like you're starting in chapter 1 because of the translation issues. It's kind of goofy. Don't stress out about it too much. But here you go. Micah the prophet. We're going to talk about him just really quickly. He says, as for you, Bethlehem, Aphrathah. That's just another name for Bethlehem. It's like a region, sort of a county, another, you know, I don't know, just another name for Bethlehem probably, all right? Seemingly insignificant. If I were you, I'd underline the seemingly insignificant words. Among the clans of Judah, from you a king will emerge who will rule over Israel on my behalf one whose origins are in the distant past. So the Lord will hand the people of Israel over to their enemies until the time when the woman in labor gives birth. Then the rest of the king's countrymen will return to be reunited with the people of Israel. Verse four, he will assume his post and shepherd the people by the Lord's strength, by the sovereign authority of the Lord his God. They will live securely, for at that time he will be honored even in the distant regions of the earth. He'll give us peace. Should the Assyrians try to invade our land and attempt to set foot in our fortresses, we will send against them seven shepherd rulers. Make that eight commanders. They will rule the land of Assyria with a sword and the land of Nimrod with, the, with a drawn sword. Our king will rescue us from the Assyrians should they attempt to invade our land and try to set foot in our territory. This is a really awesome scene right here. Now look, the book of Micah, all right, this is prophetic, right? A lot of these things between Micah and Isaiah, a lot of this is written 600 years or earlier um, than uh, before Jesus' birth, all right? He's... He's talking about Jesus here. He's talking about Messiah. So the book of Micah begins by telling us when Micah prophesies, it's about when and how and what cities he's doing all this prophecy in, right? Micah's a hard prophet to kind of understand. When you read through it, you're kind of trying to keep up and trying to figure it out a lot because the book alternates back and forth when you read through all this stuff, back and forth between threats of doom and promises of thrilling hope. And so it's hard to figure out, right? It, it's hard to figure out what situation he's referring to and how the hope and the doom are connected to each other because he talks about doom and then he talks about hope. He talks about doom and gloom and all these terrible things that are happening and then he talks about hope. All this stuff and why they're there, these people are there and he's representing God and then, and then this, he talks about the Messiah coming, all right, but the reason the book is arranged like this is to make the point that where God and his people are concerned, and that's us included, there's always hope, even in the darkest catastrophes. There's always hope. That's why I love David, because he messes up so bad. He creates all kinds of horrible catastrophes, but there's still tons of hope. Hope for him, hope to be utilized by him, hope for his love for God. And hope for Israel at the same time. So Micah mixes gloom and hope throughout his book. And we're going to take a look at the gloom first. And then focus on the great promises about 
the Messiah who will come from Bethlehem. This is a story of where Jesus is going to come from, Bethlehem. And I love the fact that David comes from this little town. Now, I've been to Bethlehem, and it's actually just sort of like you think, you know, you kind of you, you, you kind of get these images and pictures in your mind, you know, from Christmas about what Bethlehem looks like. It's really, it's, it's um, I don't think it's that beautiful. <laughs> in fact, it's sad. It's actually a sort of an unsafe place to be. When you tour Israel, going to Bethlehem is, on, is low on the list to go, actually, because there's nothing awesome to see. You see lots of uh, Palestinians. You see lots of, peop- uh, lots of people that believe and think something completely different than, than um, Christianity, Christianity would tell you. And so, it's, um, it's kind of a sad thing a little bit. It's still not very big. You can see Bethlehem from Jerusalem, and from a distance it looks cool, but in the midst of it, it's it's really not that hot. And it's not a place you want to go. Certainly not a place you want to spend the night. It's kind of a bummer. But it's little still, and imagine it was just village-like at the time as well. So, Israel's sin, Micah begins to tell us, brings their downfall. These people are sinning. So prophets like Micah didn't bring the downfall. He just simply announced it, which Israel and the nations brought, the, brought upon themselves through sin. Israel and the nations sinned, and so they brought all this judgment and this doom. When you go to Micah chapter 1, you, you can read it, God's judgment on Samaria because of their idolatry. In Micah chapter 2, he puts his finger on, on coveting and stealing and oppression and pride. Idolatry leads to coveting and stealing and oppression, on and on. For all this, Micah promises doom and destruction. So he's representing God. God is telling, uh, God is speaking through him. Samaria is going to become a heap of ruins, he says. And Jerusalem's going to go into exile in Babylon. And on and on through chapter 4, Micah's long since dead. He dies when Jerusalem falls. He didn't destroy the nation. They destroyed themselves with idolatry, coveting, and perverted justice. It's pretty bad. And they didn't listen. So the second thing is that, that, that gloom and hope are, are mixed together here, right? Mingled together with all this gloom are glimpses of the future. Thrilling hope for a repentant and obedient people. So chapter 6 Verses 7 and 8. You should flip over to chapter 6. It's really easy. Look at verses 7 and 8. This is what God wants from Israel right here. It's pretty awesome. And I think it's what he wants from us. Because there's echoes of this throughout the New Testament. He says, will the Lord accept a thousand rams or 10,000 streams of olive oil? Should I give him my firstborn child as payment for my rebellion, my offspring, my own flesh and blood for my sin? He's told you. He says, he's told you, oh man, that's verse eight, what is good and what the Lord really wants from you. He wants you to carry out justice, to love faithfulness, and to live obediently before God. So, this is what God wants, obedient faith in in, in God's love. And if you will obey God like he wants, 
that, that, that act of obedience persuades your heart to show love and mercy to people who are, who are mistreated, who are a lot less fortunate than you. When you think about this, this is the way it looks. I think I, I, I have these three things up here. Go ahead and put them up. Kind of in reverse. Here's the requirements. Here's what God wants. Obedient fellowship with God that is childlike dependence on him. This is what God wants. This is what he wanted of his people then and what he wants of us now. He wants love. He wants us to love faithfully. Love faithfully. That is a heart that's, that faithfully loves. That faithfully loves. And he wants deeds of justice or, or an active life on behalf of those who are mistreated. There's plenty who are. So uh, these are the same things that Jesus has in mind when he criticized the Pharisees. We've been journeying through the gospel of Mark, right? In Matthew chapter 23, you can find it because they're, they're neglecting the things that are most important uh, when it comes to things, justice, mercy, and faith. And Jesus gets all over these guys about that. It's the same thing, right? He says, <clears throat> Well, let me, let, me, let me just keep going because there's a great thrilling hope ahead for Israel. That's what Micah begins to say. There's a hope ahead of you if you return to the way God's designed you and what God wants you to do to, to be full of justice, love, and mercy and walk obediently with God. Here's the third point. There's a promise of the coming Messiah. Now, again, this is the thrilling hope, right? If you stop here, if you just stopped here and focused on all the gloom and the doom and all that kind of stuff, you would miss the picture of the future. <clears throat> and, um, and that God wants to dwell in the midst of his people. But we can't see God, so God does something about that. God is spirit, he's invisible, yet God wills to show us himself as much as possible. So from the days of David, he promised to send a human king through um, whom he would rule the world and he would be so closely and, and mysteriously identified with this king that the king would be called mighty God, everlasting father. That's Isaiah's prophecy, right? So when Isaiah or Micah paints a picture of God's future, this thrilling hope, when he does all that, the visible person at the center is Messiah, it's Jesus, and that's who we celebrate now uh, during Christmas. So, to get Micah's whole picture of this future glory, you have to go to Micah chapter 5. So, go back to Micah chapter 5 and look at these four verses, verses 2 through 4. He predicts the Messiah coming out of Bethlehem. Now, this is exciting because in prophecy, in prophesying these words about the coming of Jesus, the coming of Messiah, Micah reveals to um, people of his time and to us at least three things about God that should turn us away from idols and all the things that we focus on. We, we me as well, we focus on the, all the wrong stuff at Christmas, I don't know what you're looking forward to, but when, usually when you ask people, what's this time of year? What do you love about this time of year? Well, we like the gifts. We like family. We like all the gatherings, all that fellowship and all that kind of stuff, right? And those can be good things. Those can be awesome things, but they can also not have anything to do with, really, 
what God wants. Those are great things, but if you're not careful, all that stuff takes first place or, or gets in front of the person of Jesus and Messiah, right? So look at um, the second verse in chapter five. He says, as for you, Bethlehem, seemingly insignificant among the clans of Judah, from you a king will emerge who will rule over Israel on my behalf, representing me, who's me, who I ask, right? One whose origins are in the distant past. So, wow, this is really crazy. And, and you can, I don't, I don't have to read those four verses, um, right? But there's three things that are revealed about God. Here they are. They're, they're, they're three simple things. God always acts to magnify the glory of his freedom and mercy. God keeps his promises. And God protects his people. These are all things that I think are really important. If those three things are true, then who wouldn't want the Lord above everything else? Who wouldn't want the Lord above everything else? There's so many things that we want and that we think we want during Christmas. But if these three things are true, I'm telling you, who wouldn't want... Who would not want to be protected by omnipotence? Who wouldn't want to be the heir inheriting, um, <clears throat> inheriting all of God's promises? The endless promises and the endless uh, love of God. So let me try to communicate God's thrill of hope by showing you how Micah reveals these things. Let's just talk about God magnifies his glory. First, God acts to magnify his glory. That's verse two. God speaks and he contrasts the insignificance of the town of Bethlehem with the greatness of the ruler who would come out of her. This is a big deal. Why does he do this, right? Why does he choose this little teeny city? Why? Why is it small? Why is it insignificant? Why does he really, really point this out? This is where Messiah comes out of, this little teeny place. This is kind of a big deal. There's a huge impact here. Bethlehem is barely worth counting uh, among the clans of Judah, is what he's saying. Yet God chooses to bring the magnificent Messiah out of this little teeny place. Why does he do that? One answer is the Messiah uh, uh, that the Messiah is of the lineage of David. I pointed that out. And David was a Bethlehemite. That's where David was from, right? That's true, but it misses the point. The point of verse two is that Bethlehem is small. It's little, it's small. God chooses something small, quiet, out of the way, and does something there that changes the course of history and eternity. This is really, really significant. Why? Because when he acts this way, we can't boast in the achievements of men. That's why he does it. But only in the glorious mercies of God. We can't say, well, of course, he's, he had favor on Bethlehem. Look at the human glory Bethlehem has achieved. Bethlehem is a nothingness place. It's nothing. All we can say is God is wonderfully free. He's not impressed by, by anything that we do, our bigness or anything else that we get to do. <clears throat> when God chose a replacement for King Saul, you know that story? How did he do it? Do you remember? He sent Samuel to the little town of Bethlehem and when he chose the sons of Jesse, that's David's father, he set his favor on the youngest, not the oldest. 
When God chose a man to defeat Goliath, it was David. You remember David? He was just a teenager. He was kind of a scrawny kid. Remember he tried to put on Saul's armor and it didn't fit. It swallowed him. He couldn't even, it, it just swallowed him up. So he says, I don't need that. I'm not going to utilize that. Remember? When he chose a weapon, it wasn't a sword. What was it? Slingshot. Are you kidding me? This is a slingshot. Why? Why does God do his great work through little towns, youngest sons, slingshots, mangers, mustard seeds, all these things? Why does he do that? You notice that pattern? David tells us in 1 Samuel 17. Turn to 1 Samuel 17. You got to find, you got to see this for yourself. 1 Samuel chapter 17, start in verse 45. There's three verses here. Just before he kills Goliath, just before he kills the giant, look what he says. Listen to what he says if you don't turn there yourself. This is what he says to Goliath. This is part of the reason why I love David, why David is a man after God's own heart. He says this to a guy that's nine something feet tall and scrawny David with a slingshot, no armor, and all the warrior, everybody is like defeated. This is what he says in verse 45. It's so awesome. You're coming against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. But I'm coming against you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel's armies, who you have defiled. <laughs> it's a teenager. This is a teenager. This very day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. Just try to be a teenager and say that today. This day, oh, I will give the corpse, give the corpse of the Philistines army to the birds of the sky and the wild animals of the land. Then all the land will realize that Israel has a God. And all this assembly will know that it is not by a sword or a spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's and he will deliver you into our hands. God uses little towns, young sons, slingshots to magnify his glory by contrasting to show that he's not the least dependent on human stuff, human glory, greatness, achievements, all that. He will use the most insignificant things to fulfill his purposes. Why? The Apostle Paul, he puts it like this. He says, God chose what the world thinks is foolish to shame the wise. And God chose what the world thinks is weak to shame the strong. God chose a stable so no innkeeper could say or could boast, hey, God chose my inn to stay in. God chose a manger so that no woodworker could say, well, he chose the craftsmanship of my bed to be born in. He chose Bethlehem so nobody could say, the greatness of our city compelled God to choose this city. So what happens to our boasting? God excludes it completely. A person is justified by faith apart from work. So, 
God's choice of insignificant Bethlehem as a place of the incarnation is essentially the message of justification by faith apart from works. You can't earn God's favor. When God chooses, he chooses in freedom in order to magnify his glory and his mercy. That's why he does it. So this is why Micah contrasts the insignificant Bethlehem with the greatness of Messiah. He shows God acting in a typical fashion to magnify his glory and to turn human boasting into gratitude and praise and faith. We want to make it all about us. We want to make Christmas all about us. We want to make it about all this stuff. And and I think you should enjoy your family and great food and parties and fellowship and put lights all over your house and decorate and do all these things. But remember and recognize it is not about us. It's not about us. It's not at all about us. Here's the other thing. God keeps his promises. I love this. God does what he says he's going to do. Any Jew hearing Micah predict the coming of a ruler out of Bethlehem who would shepherd the people by the Lord's strength, any Jew reading this would automatically say or think immediately of two people. They would think of David and the coming son of David, the Messiah. David was from Bethlehem. David was a ruler in Israel. David was a shepherd. So the link between the coming Messiah and King David is the link of promise and the thrill of hope, right? What Micah is doing is reasserting the certainty of God's promises to David, right? You recall maybe back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, how God said to David, I will raise up your descendant, one of your own sons, to succeed you, and I will establish his his kingdom. This is 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through probably 16. He'll build a house for, um, for my name, and I will make his dynasty permanent. Your house and your kingdom will stand before me permanently. Your dynasty will be permanent. David is eternally linked to Messiah. <laughs> so awesome. The amazing thing about Micah is that he reasserts the certainty of this promise, not at a time when Israel is rising to power, not in a time when Israel is like living it and, 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 and really fleshing it out. What does Micah do? He asserts all this and he reminds when they are just like at the bottom, doing everything wrong, seriously blowing it. When they're sinking towards destruction, Micah witnesses the destruction of the northern kingdom. He predicts this fall. You can determine, you can assess how firmly someone believes God's promises by whether it gives him strength and hope. When life caves in around people, man, that's when you can really find out what they believe. And Micah It appears never wavered. He knew God would keep his promises. So the point of Micah, this whole thing that that two centuries of terrible circumstances don't nullify the word of God, just like all of the junk that David did, all of his sin, all these different things don't nullify who he is and who he's supposed to be. That's really great news for me and you. Have you biffed it? (laughs) Have you messed up? Have you made some mistakes? Maybe you get to think about that during Christmas even more. Some people hate Christmas because 
your mistakes sort of like get in your face a little bit. When you invite your family back and stuff like that, and some of that stuff just kind of, well, you know, it's like, ah, this is a great reminder that no matter the circumstances, it doesn't nullify the word of God. What he has spoken is going to come to pass. And I'm telling you, there's thrilling hope out there. Truth, good stuff. This is just the sixth point right here that I want to make. I know I got seven points today. It's kind of crazy. But God protects his people. He wants to protect you and I. You learn that God protects his people. If you just look at verse four, and we go back to chapter five, look at verse four. It says, he will assume his post and shepherd the people by the Lord's strength, by the sovereign authority of the Lord his God. They will live, uh, live securely for, for at that time he will be honored even in the distant regions of the earth. See, God's purpose in sending us Jesus or Messiah is not only to glorify himself, but also to shepherd his people. I don't know how he does it, but in the midst of all this stuff, what God does is he looks out for you're in my best interest. At the same time, he glorifies himself. So he can turn the most ugly things into things that have our best interest in mind and that benefit us and that look out for us. It's amazing how God does that. The first thing he does is he assumes his post. He doesn't lie around waiting for us to serve him. He, he, he'll be alert. He, he works for those who choose him as their shepherd. Whether you're working or not, God works for you. The second thing, he shepherds his people, right? He cares his people. He doesn't just leave us to find our own food. You know, that's what a shepherd does. It's all about sort of land management. He moves sheep around so that they can find places to eat. He won't let, you know, you can't let sheep stay in the same place because if you do, they just eat it all and then pretty soon there's nothing left and there's nothing left to return to after a while and the ground erodes. God knows all this, and so he doesn't leave us to that. He leads us to green pastures. He leads us to places where we can find water, right? He also, the third thing he does, he serves us in the strength, uh, he says, in the strength of the Lord and the authority of the Lord. In other words, his good intentions for us aren't going to be hindered by a lack of strength. So it doesn't matter how strong you are or not, God's going to be our strength in the middle of our weaknesses, the strength of the Lord is omnipotent strength. Who doesn't want that? And then notice the last thing. He will be honored even to the distant regions of the earth. There's going to be no pockets of resistance unsubdued. In other words, God will invade every corner of the earth. Remember, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Nobody's going to get away. <laughs> right? Nobody. So, here's the implications. Here's the conclusions. Jesus has come out of Bethlehem. Like his town, he was humble and obscure and poor in his first coming. He's going to come again in awesome glory to gather all of his people, his flock, the church, into the kingdom. Micah's, Micah's promise of his coming proclaims three things to us about God that should make us want him above everything else at Christmas. These things should really make us want him. He magnifies the glory of his freedom and mercy. 
He keeps his promises through the darkest times, through the most ugly stuff, and he protects his people. I, I can't think of anybody who wouldn't want that. You're going to meet people throughout this season, throughout Christmas. Things aren't going good. It's, things are just taking them by surprise, and they just weren't, they just weren't ready. They're not in church. Not expecting all these kinds of, you're going to meet people all the time. Who wouldn't want to be protected forever by divine omnipotence? Is there anybody who doesn't want to be the beneficiary of promises like this, which involve infinite, infinite gifts and glory? I, I don't, I, they're, they're fibbing if they say they don't want it. Especially if you introduce it um, like Micah introduces this because what's going on in people's lives is just real stuff, right? <clears throat> Ups and downs. There's gloom, doom, messes of all kinds, but there's the thrill of hope, truth, not cross your finger kind of hope, but real hope, real hope. Oh, I love this time of year because it it's a time that should be screaming and showcasing that a king is coming and actually coming again. Will you bow your head with me? Thank you, Lord, for a little bit of time together that we can focus on you, quite honestly, as much as we can. Thank you for all these great characters that, that give us really awesome, real pictures of, of really who you are and what you're all about, why. Help us to be people that help folks around us get their questions answered. There's plenty of us that are just like Israel at this time. We got a lot of idols in our lives. We covet things. We steal. We're full of pride. Just like these folks were. Thank you, God, that you use small, insignificant things, including us. That that's what you're all about. The youngest of sons, slingshots, small towns, insignificant things, Lord God, to magnify and glorify who you are. You choose to use us, God. And pray, God, that we might be worthy during this time of year. <clears throat> worthy of representing you, Lord God. Help us not to make this season about us. It's so easy to do. Help us to make it about others. We know that that's our mission and our mandate. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys have a fantastic day. Middle school people, thanks for sitting in the front row today. Really appreciate it. I hope I didn't put you to sleep too much.